right now is this challenge that we've talked about with the men. Um, there's a group me thread. There's going to be some face-to-face things. But basically, there are almost 40 people in our church, 40 men in our church, semi-attached to our church, some guys that we work with and some other things that are partaking in this challenge together. And the goal of the challenge was just to implement some self-discipline, but to bring in some habits that you and I can carry into the future uh, to help with just that relationship with God. But not only that, but, but, but the relationship with each other. And I want you to understand something. The devil does not like any of that. It drives him crazy, especially when men get on board and start talking about biblical things and start talking about making biblical changes and start talking about loving their wife and their community and their children better like Jesus would. He really, really, really despises that. And that puts us right on the verge of watching God really work. Don't let up. The numbers have been good. The offerings have been good. There's been a peace here for months. And there's been just this undercurrent of just kind of this little bit of chaos. A lot of it's coming through our children. Would that not be the way the enemy works? Adults are all good. We love our kids. We're enjoying this blessing. We've got a a teenager on the praise team getting ready to go to college. It's been years since we've had college kids interested not only in being attached, but church membership. Like I've got college kids talking to me about wanting to be attached to our church even as they prepare. Like that's not normal. Been here 10 years, never seen it. The Lord is doing something. He's doing it in you, and he's doing it through you. Do not let up on your vigilance and on your prayer, right? Because the enemy will weasel his nose right under the tent, and then before you and I know it, we'll be in the middle of a real big mess, okay? Stay vigilant. Enjoy these blessings. Love them, but also know that, man, your enemy hates them. He hates to see a bunch of you guys talking He wants you mad at each other, angry. He would rather sow seeds of discord or division or just get you irritated with somebody. He would rather do things like that than to have you and I talking, even if it's on a group thread, of how we're doing that day, where we're struggling, where we're good, what the devotional had to say, talking through some of those concepts, meeting on Wednesday night to get together and pray together. He does not like that. Okay, So, pour it on, Lord. It's been 10 years waiting. We're right on the verge, seeing something super special. Esther chapter 4 is where we'll be. For such a time as this has been kind of the heading of this whole sermon series. Even the songs that we sing this morning match up exactly with the stuff you and I have been learning. Okay, The Jewish people would not have chosen for this to go on in their life. (laughs) Esther probably wouldn't have even chosen to be queen had she not been able to see the future. We're going to see a little bit of her apprehension in chapter 4 today. But these pieces play together. The God of the universe plays them together to bring about an end that glorifies King Jesus, blesses you and I, and draws us closer to him and closer to each other. You say, why are these hard things happening right now? Because ultimately, a million years from now, if you believe that's a real thing, a million years from now, you and I will be thankful for everything that drove us into knowing him better, loving him more, and needing him now. Everybody's going to be living a million years from now. Some of those will be in his presence. Others will not. And for those in his presence, there will be so many things in this life and in this world. We said, that's not good. I don't like that. I don't want to do that. And yet every one of those things that drove us into a deeper relationship with the Lord, we will look back and we will bless. And even in tears now, you and I will look back and say, thank you, Jesus, for that. Had it not been for that, I wouldn't have known you as well as I did then. I wouldn't have been ready to meet you like I was when I saw you face to face. 
You see, the Lord is working on a timetable that is totally different than ours. The nation of Israel sees that in the Old Testament. You and I see that right now, and we have to come to grips with that theology. It will be the only thing at times in your life that make whatever you're going through livable. There will be no other earthly idea or earthly reason why this should be happening to you or your family, except for that you and I don't play on that timetable. You see, one day our faith will be made sight. And we will close our eyes for the last time here and we will open them there and there he will be. And you and I will look back and praise God for everything that drove us toward him. It's the story of Esther. Ultimately, at the end of your life, it'll be the story of yours as well. Esther chapter 1, 2, and 3, what do we talk about? The king makes a mess. In chapter 1, he should have halted. He should have stopped. He, was, he wasn't hungry. They were feasting. He wasn't angry. He was joyful. He wasn't lonely. They were all around. Might have been a little tired, but he was living it up. But what happened? He got real excited, and he got really disrespected. And what happens next in the middle of that big party? He makes a mess. Kicks his queen out, exiles her. Then we get to chapter 2, an unexpected queen. This little girl, this Esther, comes up out of nowhere. She is an orphan. She is now brought into the king's palace. She's going to be treated. She's going to be dolled up, looking good, smelling good. And she's going to walk into the king a year later, and he's going to pick a new queen. You see, she didn't have a lot in her life prior to that moment. But what she did have, you and I have access to as well. She had a godly example. She had a gift. And she had a future. She had a future to be a blessing in. Friends, uh, this community and other communities uh, in the last week have been reminded, you cannot live without hope. You cannot live without a hope of tomorrow, a hope of the next 10 minutes, an eternal hope. It will drive you crazy, and the enemy will beat that drum until you are done. Once heard it said, and I loved it, I've remembered it ever since. A person can live with three weeks without food. They can go three days without water. They can go three minutes without air. You can't go three seconds without hope. You can't go three seconds without hope. That's the message you and I are bringing. Esther had that. And then finally last week in chapter 3, we talked about blessings and punishment. The end of the chapter isn't the end of the book. It may be confusing today, but God hasn't changed, and his plans to bless you and to keep you have not either. One of the greatest compliments in all of Scripture is uttered in chapter 3. They don't live like us. They do the same thing in Acts chapter 4, only they look at the disciples and say, man, these, these dudes are unlearned fishermen. How can they stand here and ask the, answer the questions to the most learned people in the culture? They dole out the same compliment then. The Jewish people in the Old Testament, the, the king is listening to his advisors, and they're looking at him and saying, there's a whole group of people, they don't live like us. What put the Jewish people on the front the tip of that spear, what put them in harm's way, is the exact same thing that makes you and I different and will at times put us in harm's way. Young ones, listen to me. You're going to deal with this more than anybody else on a repeated basis. Why? Because you live in the realm of peer pressure. You live in the realm of access, uh, a little bit of work, but a lot of free time, social media, interaction. You're not paying bills. Like All these things are going on, and it gives you more time to experience. If you are living a godly life and your catch word, there will be times they will look and say they don't live like us. We don't need to be around them. We don't want to be around them. They're going to shine a spotlight on our sin. They're going to harsh the buzz. We need to carry that badge as a badge of honor. 
you look like Jesus and you love like the Lord, there will be times that you will be known as somebody that doesn't live like them. The end of chapter 3, we figured out that the world isn't a safe place. Friends, COVID knocked everybody out of that baloney. I think one of, the, one of the most shocking things about going through the COVID debacle together was for 50 years there was this idea that 90 was on the table. I would know my grandkids and my great-grandkids, right? I would have a retirement. It would be there. All would be good, and I would just kind of sail off and easily head out. And then 2020 happened. And we're, there's an invisible disease that's going to kill you in seconds. And everybody just lost it. Why? Because we had forgot this is a dangerous place to live, especially in America. We're one of the only generations, we're the only generation ever to have that expectation like I'm going to be 90, I might even live to be 100. And my kids and grandkids are going to be there when I fade off into the sunset. Listen, that's not the real world. That may be our generation, but that was not the real world prior to 1970, 1980. War, famine, the Great Depression, the warlord next door. Somebody could end it, and everybody lived with that fear. You and I were rocked into it immediately, and it's still shaking people to this moment. The reminder was only this. It's the reminder of Scripture. This is a dangerous place to live. This is hard living. This is hard sledding. When you get up in the morning, there's no guarantees other than that the Lord is going to be with you no matter what he takes you through. That's the only guarantee you have. Nobody else may be there. Nobody else may be able to be there. But he will be there. And that's it. The kicker is, that's enough. Esther chapter 4. The city of Susa is what's thrown into a great confusion at the end of chapter 3. Let me tell you what ungodly leadership does. Ooh, brings about tons of confusion. Tons of confusion. Mass hysteria. Panic. Frustration. The end of chapter 3, that is exactly what happens. This decree has been signed. This letter has been sent. And the first city to see it freaks out. All confusion. Look at chapter 4. That's where we land today. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. You see, there's a sinful world you and I live in, but with godly influence, the godly influence in this sinful world creates two things. It creates grief and it creates courage. You can't have those things without something pushing back against you. You say, like, even grief, absolutely, grief is godly. Grief is good. We are going to talk here in a couple minutes, but even the idea of forced grief, making people deal with their grief, creates healthy people on the back end. Allowing people to walk through their grief and never deal with that infection, never deal with that pain, to shove it down and to keep it there. It's one of the most dangerous things, that, especially with men, that they work through and that we have for years. It's like the John Wayne syndrome, right? Like, I'm, I got it. I'm going to do it myself. I'll take care of myself. I don't need your help. It's satanic to believe that way. It's ungodly to believe that way. At a bare minimum, you and I are desperately in need of the Lord. Desperately. And then he's going to look at you and say, hey, you need some brothers. Don't be an idiot. 
It's one of the most dangerous things you and I can do is not deal with grief. It is healthy. It is good. It shows us that the world is broken, and it shows us that we long for something else. The something else we long for is heaven, is God, is completion, is safety, is security. Grief is good. And this is passed out. This, this decree is made, and everywhere it lands, there is deep, intense grief. Why? They've just been given a death sentence. I mean, it's got a date attached. 11 months from now, this is going down. It makes very clear the idea that there's not going to be a next year. What do you do with that information? You grieve, as you should. In a world that's fallen, it also means there's got to be courage. At some point in time, the grieving is done. There must be a plan made. You must start pushing through. you got to get up. You know, one of the saddest things about the world we live in is your news might be catastrophic on Friday, but guess what? Monday and now even Saturday and Sunday, somebody's going to show up and drop some bills in the mail. Like, they don't care. Life keeps rolling. You know, at a certain age, you may just got the worst news on the planet, and that little three-year-old toddler is still going to need to be corralled. He's going to be up in the middle of the night needing somebody to take care of him. Like, this world is relentless. It is hard. And in that, there is grief and there is courage, not outside of God's influence, but in it. Where's the courage come from for people that only believe in this world? There's nothing there. It's all selfish in nature. It's take, it's get, it's destroy, it's plunder, it's pillage, it's mine, and then it's gone. That's all they have. Yet you and I sit here with the greatest hope and the greatest treasure the world has ever known. And that's what gives us courage. Courage to sing songs like we've sung this morning. Courage to look in the future and not just see a retirement date. And God help us not just see a date that we're going to die, but to see a million years from now in a new heaven and a new earth that God has created for us to be a part of. There's a lot of courage and a lot of hope that comes from that theology. That's why we don't pull back from Scripture around here. I want to teach it to you because in that theology, there are things that will change your life and there will things that will buoy it and keep it going. What's the response? The response is grief. The, the response is not to hide, not to fight, and not to rush in furious. The response is take the minute to deal with the information. Stop. Grieve. Instead of kicking down doors and wanting to fight, what do they do? They stop. They take their needs to the Lord and they deal with them together. Jesus would say it this way, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Who is comforting those that mourn in that passage? God. Ultimately, it's God. Now, if you and I have done what we're supposed to do, we're attached to a church body now. In this New Testament era, you and I are attached to this church body. And who helps us, who helps us grieve? Who helps us and be comforted while we're grieving? Who does that now? I don't know why my brain's going blank. It's, it's skipping. My CD's skipping. I'm going to get back. Just hang on. Got to hit the reset button. Who helps us grieve? Who comforts us now? Jesus' body. It's dangerous to be alone. It's dangerous. It's dangerous for your soul. It's dangerous for your life. It's dangerous for your future. Your tears move the heart and the hand of God. Look at verse 5 with me as we read on. Um, verse 4, I'm sorry. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Esther tries to comfort Mordecai in his pain. 
Her offering is not pity and it's not distant obligation. Friends, stop seeing love as pity and obligation. You and I rob a lot of blessings from people because we will not accept what they want to give. And if you and I are doing it right, we're giving to the person because we love them, but we're also giving to who? And he promises to return that investment for all eternity. Not a cup of cold water given in my name will be forgotten. Friends, when somebody wants to love on you, men especially, you have got to listen to this. When somebody wants to love on you, they're giving you something as a blessing to God too. It is a sacrifice from them to the Lord, except even if it's just prayer, if it's help, if it's offered, if it's demanded, take it. She is sitting in the queen's palace. She sees her, her father, her adoptive father, grieving. And with that distance, all she can do is send him new clothes. What is wrong? What's going on? Let me fix at least one problem. That's not pity. It's love. He's loved her and she loves him. But at this distance with this idea, she doesn't know. So she's going to be brought deeper into what is going on. Comforting those that mourn is not easy. It's not easy. But it's real life. Getting into that grief with somebody is not easy at all. You are shouldering their burden. You're lifting them up. It requires of you something. Mental, emotional effort, maybe even some physical effort, depending on what is going on. These are not easy things to do, but yet that is the cost of love. The picture of that is a mother giving birth. The most painful things in the world is to give birth, and yet it's forgotten about immediately. Why? Because the love that was there brings about a forgetfulness. She wants to comfort, and yet she has no clue what is going on. She's heartbroken, she's at a distance, and she's just trying to help. And she's going to reach out as fast as she can. The first thing she can do is send him new clothes. Why? Because his physical appearance is one that lets her know something's wrong. I don't know if he's poor. I don't know what misfortune has bestowed him. I don't know what's gone on, but clean him up and get him back to rejoicing. Nope, he refuses. It's not the time yet. Look at verse 5 now with me. Then Esther called to Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Verse 8, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go into the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of the people. Verse 9, And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. From immediate needs to prolonged action, Esther's love of Mordecai demands some form of action. There's going to be some form of action that is going to be demanded to love him properly, to help him. Sometimes this kind of love takes us way deeper than expected. Sometimes you look at that person, you see something's wrong, you engage and you figure out, holy cow, I am in the middle of a mess. I wasn't expecting that. Right? But when you and I really love someone, there's going to be moments when that comes up. What is going on? What is wrong? What your countenance tells me something is wrong. Is it sin? Is it heartbreak? Is it grief? Is it worry? What's going on? And we're navigating through that. Sometimes you will open up the door to something that's going to make you change your plans. And that's just real love. 
Your kid walks in, your parent walks in, they got issues, they need help, you stop what you're doing. Nothing else matters. There are moments in church life that that's going to be the exact same way. You're going to have to stop. I'm going to be late. I'm not going to be there for this thing. We're going to walk outside and deal privately with whatever's going on instead of partaking in whatever's supposed to be happening. Like There are moments that stuff happens. Here's the other one. Sometimes this kind of love will illuminate that you and I are in trouble too. When you and I are loving real people, when we're digging into their life, especially men, listen to me with this old accountability thing, when you see a brother that you love, that you care about, that you are respectful of, and you see them struggling with something that you do without struggle, there will be some moments where you look and say, I'm in trouble too. I just didn't know it. Wasn't grieving my spirit yet until I found out that this guy is struggling with this thing. Does that make sense? Sometimes when you and I enter into life, we will find things there that make us change our behavior. Make us want to repent of something that we didn't even know was wrong. But man, if so-and-so is struggling with that, how can I not struggle with it? It's entertainment. Maybe it's lust. Talking with men and some of you young ones in here, I can't say anything you've not already been exposed to, but like pornography, alcohol, abuse, substance abuse, something. Like you're going to get in there and you're going to be dealing with real people and you're going to figure out, wait a second, this person's struggling with that. I do it and I don't struggle. <laughs> something's wrong with him or something's wrong with me. You see, Esther just found out that the Jews are in trouble. And what is she? Thank you. You haven't been paying attention. I'm so proud of you. You're listening. She's going to be in trouble too. Mordecai, like, listen, if you don't do something about this, you're going to be in trouble too. Friends, when you and I are doing life together with real people, we land in these uh, positions a lot. Like, oh, well, how did this start? Oh, it started like that? Oh, I do that same thing too. I need to be more careful. Lord, I'm sorry. I watch that too. I do that too. That action is my action. I need to get out of this stuff. See, loving real people does more than just put you and I in a position to help them. It also helps us. One of the greatest things you can do, especially as a young one, is to learn to dodge the potholes your parents and older people have already hit. Like, listen, that's not going to end well. And you go, okay, I will swerve around it, right? Instead of being on the interstate, hitting into 75. I'm going to hit it too. All right, well, go fix something now. That's what I had to do, right? Look at verse 10 with me. Then Esther spoke. Uh, to Athach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and saying, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except for the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. You see, Esther, this, this, this suggestion for her, she gets thrust into this huge situation thrown right in it her people her father her heritage is all in trouble and there she is sitting in the wings like she has access but it's not that simple it's not that simple life rarely is she's going to be called to act she doesn't understand god's plan and she doesn't understand her place in it lord you just elevated me to queen so that i can walk into his presence and be killed we know this guy will follow the rule of the written law, correct? He just did in chapter 1. Because his old queen, what did he do? He sent her off. He demoted her because the law said he had to. Because his buddies were standing around shaking the paper. You see, this is not as easy as it comes across like she has access. She does have access. 
And if he's not pleased or he's frustrated or he didn't feel like seeing her that day, it's over. So now everybody else gets 11 months to prepare and run, and she's done with already. Some of you are living in moments you don't understand God's plan. You don't understand your place in it. So the truths of this book apply to you because you can't see the end. She could not see the end. The way forward isn't as simple as it appears. She'll need favor again. So let me tell you something. What would work in her favor to look forward and to see God working, to wonder what her place is there? What does she have to draw on? She was an orphan taken in by a loving, godly man. She was brought into the king's palace where she was given favor, shown favor by the eunuch, the person in the king's court, looked at her, loved her, cared for her, took care of her, made sure she was at the front of the line, and then ultimately she is shown favor with who? The king. You see, she's going to look back on her past and see God working. If you do not replay how the Lord has taken care of you, how he has loved you, how he has provided for you, if you don't do that on repeat, you will get in moments where you forget what he has done. And if you forget, if Esther forgets that she's been shown favor in the past on repeat, even though her circumstances were hard and horrible and she would have never chosen them, she's been shown favor. If she forgets that, she will look forward and say, man, at least three times it's happened. Is it going to happen a fourth? Probably. The Lord has been faithful. He will take care of me. But if she forgets and she looks forward at that one moment and she says, is God going to provide or is he not going to provide? Is the king going to show me favor or is he going to kill me? There may be a different answer if she doesn't have a past to draw from. He has shown favor. He will do it again. Or you wake up with a blank slate and everything is just a blind leap of faith. If you and I do not talk about the past, if we don't share the past with our children, with, with friends, with people that we trust, if we forget what the Lord has done, it makes hard moments that much harder. Because you and I will forget how many times we've been shown favor and how much the Lord has loved us. Look at verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think for yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than any other Jew. For if you keep silent this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Man, there's beautiful encouragement in that. There's a lot of encouragement in that. Number one is don't sin against God, against others, and yourself by being selfish. What's he calling her? What's he telling her? Don't think you're going to escape. If the Jews are done, you will be done. You will fall in line with your people. You will not escape this tragedy. Do not be selfish and try to insulate yourself. It won't happen. You'll sin against God. You'll sin against me. You'll sin against us. And you'll sin against yourself. There's wonderful encouragement there for you and I. Do not sin against the Lord when times get hard. He would look at her and say, remember your faith, your history, and your hope. Because when Mordecai quotes that, hey, if you don't do it, deliverance will rise from someone else. What is he pulling back from? Jewish history. God's promises. Well, God says this is going to happen. And throughout history, he has provided deliverer, 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 deliverer. Esther, if it's not you, you could be that person. 
If it's not you and you and you bow out and you hide and you run and you show cowardice, God will provide through another person, but you and your family will be done. Remember your faith, your history, and your hope. And finally, one of the things that I try to drive home to you all so often because we live in such a world that is so hopeless, you were born for this moment. The struggle, the fight, the help, and to hope. It's all laid at your feet for right now. No matter what you're going through, you, it, was, it was handed to you. God has laid it in front of you and said, this is your battle. Fight it. Fight it faithfully. Fight it lovingly. Be a blessing to other people. Put your life, put your future in my hands, and I will take care of everything else. And if the worst the world can do is send you to meet me, then the struggle's over. That just kind of rolls off like that, right? Doesn't feel real good when it hits home. But that is the truth that anchors us in so that you can do hard things, so that you will do hard things, so that you will love and care for those that need it. Last couple of verses, we're done this morning. Verse 15 says, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish... I perish. She says that to her dad. Now, you either believe it or you don't believe it. You know what I mean? Like, that's either glib and it doesn't mean anything to you, or you really believe that kind of comment. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered. That is the end of chapter 4. There is still no resolution. It still looks like there is so much trouble brewing. The depth of this moment requires prayer, focus, and a deeper intimacy with God, His will or plan, and together with other people. That's why she asked for more than one person. She doesn't ask for just Mordecai to pray with her and fast with her. She asked for all of them. I want to leverage the hand and the heart of God. I want to know that my next step is exactly what I should do. That's all she's reaching for. Like the sentence has already been established. Death is coming. All she needs to know is the next thing I do, is it the right thing? Three days of fasting and prayer to settle the heart. Mandated grief brings clarity and healing. Friends, one of the things about mandating grief is simply this. Eventually you get tired of grieving. Eventually you get up. You take the shower and you get back to work. The pain is still there. I understand that. But when you let that grief linger and you don't actually deal with it, you never get any healing. It just simmers like an infection. Three days to fast and pray. We're going to settle my heart. Three days to fast and pray. We're going to remind the body that we're what? Just dust. You and I are just dust. This brings about timely urgency. I'm running out of time. When you and I remember that, it brings about that kind of urgency. I got things to do. I got people that need me, and I got a short amount of time. It's time to get busy. The other one it does is it reminds us that we have a longing for eternity. That this is not the end. This body hungers, but man, that soul can just feed on. Some of the guys are learning that this week when there are calorie restrictions and there are no carbs after three. And listen, wives, if they're being super grumpy or kids, you let me know. We'll have that conversation too. You got to do it with a good attitude, right? Don't be no grumpus running around. Huh? Nobody else right. Amen. If you can't say amen, you got to say ouch. Listen, that body, this body, these things that go on within us remind us of certain things. Number one, they remind us we're running out of time. 
You only got so much time to love people, love the Lord, serve him, and, and for lack of a better term, build up treasure in heaven. You and I got days. That's it. And then on the other side, it's there's more to come. When time ceases and there's nothing left but joy and peace and love. Three days of fasting and prayer to calm the soul. Dealing with grief and the physical limitations of this life will prepare us for the mission ahead. To prepare us to meet the one that's giving it. If I perish, I perish. As they come this morning to play, I want you to understand something. That faith, that faith statement is yours and mine. See, you're going to go out and you're going to get in the car. And some of us are going to go to the hospital this week and we're going to put our life in other people's hands. You're going to drive to work. You're going to drive home. We eat a bunch of stuff that nobody knows what's in it. Like every day you and I live by faith that the day is going to end the way it began. Every day we do it. The idea of Esther is she sees an end coming and she has to deal with it. So she deals with it in faith. If I perish, I perish. The heart of our faith sounds like that kind of statement. In the moment of salvation, you're speaking internally. Lord, I'm never going to perish. I've been saved. Jesus has paid for my sin. He has redeemed me, taken care of me. In the moment of your last breath, you want to hear some chilling stories, speak to, uh, speak to people that have worked in hospice care. Pull Cassie Darnell aside one day, if you can deal with how mean she is. Pull her aside one day and let her tell you some stories. And make the hair on your neck stand up. What happens when you and I are, are leaving this world and going into that one? This kind of faith steps in there. This process repeatedly prepares us. It reminds us of Esther's truths that will make us ready to meet the Lord, but make us more useful today. You see, we don't run from these things, and what that does is it's counter to what you would think. We don't run toward heaven and just try to get there as fast as we can. We marinate in the idea that it's coming, and you and I get better. We get, we're more of a blessing to people around us because we are heavenly-minded. We're not running to get there. We're not running to be crucified. We're not running to those crosses. We're not running to those things. But we're just marinating in the truth that this isn't all there is. God is at work, and I am here to be a blessing. And when he takes me home, he takes me home. That's Esther's idea. You and I struggle with position, commission, and completion. Where we're at, why we're there, and what happens when it's done. You have a position to be in. You have a commission that you are required to do. And then when it's done, you will never have to worry about the work, the sweat, or the toil again. Be loving the Lord. You and I are required to engage in the fight, to do it the right way, and then to go to sleep and sleep tight. Put your head on the pillow at night and know that the Lord is in charge and you have done what you were required to do. The rest is in His hands and go to sleep. Stand with me today. If you need something, you come. On a hill far away, certain 